Great to see you. If you're joining us with us here online or if you're with us in the room, it's great to have you with us. We're actually in week number two of a series that we're moving our way through called Fight My Battles. And essentially what we're talking about is the battleground that we're living in. If, if you look around our world right now, if you look around at everything that's happening in our society and our world, we're in the midst of a battleground. And so the question we're asking is, how does God call us as his people to fight the battles that we find ourselves in? And so today we're going to be looking at the Battle of Jericho. And if you've read the Bible at all, you know the Battle of Jericho. If you grew up in Sunday school, you grew up singing the songs and doing the flannel graph, you know, of the walls coming down. And I'm guessing even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably have heard something about the Battle of Jericho. And so we're going to look at that this morning. This is what the, the New Testament writer of Hebrews said about the Battle of Jericho. Hebrews 11 verse 30 says, It was by faith, it was by faith, that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. So our, our understanding of what happened with the battle of Jericho, if you go ahead to the next slide, is it was an act of faith, not an act of warfare that won the battle of Jericho. It was an act of faith that actually won the battle, not some brilliant military strategy. In fact, the most amazing thing to me about the Battle of Jericho that we're going to see this morning as we get into it is there actually is no battle <laughs> of Jericho. That God is the main character of the story. And really, it's him that does all the action. It's God that does all the fighting. Israel had their part to play in obedience and faith to God, but really, it's an act of God on behalf of his people that wins the Battle of Jericho. There really isn't a battle between two armies. And I'm going to take a risk here for a minute. I'm just going to be uh, really honest with you, if I could. Um, this message has been a really challenging one for me to put together. Uh, I've really struggled. I've gone through different kind of revisions of this, this message. And the reason for that is because as I began to study this passage of Scripture, uh, by the way, this is one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. So I've heard tons of sermons about it. I've given sermons about the Battle of Jericho. You know, we've looked at Bible studies and things like that. But as I began to study this story afresh for what we were going to talk about this morning— I felt like God was leading me in a direction, and I felt like he had a message to give. And to be just totally honest, I didn't really want to give it. I, I was kind of resisting God a little bit. And I, I struggled getting this passage, passage together, but I believe God has a message that he wants to share with us this morning. And, and here's why it was a challenging message for me to put together. Here's what we do with the story of Jericho. Almost every sermon I've ever heard on the Battle of Jericho, every Bible study I've heard, what we do with this story about the Battle of Jericho is we identify with the winning side. We identify with Israel. We read the story and we go, yeah, I'm like Israel. Like God is on my side. And basically I have to, you know, just have faith and march and keep marching and keep marching. And God will bring the walls down of my enemies. God will act on my behalf. God will do it. All I've got to do is I've just got to have faith and keep marching. Right? And if you've grown up in church, you're like, yeah, I've heard every single, every single time we've ever talked about this story. That's the message. That's the lesson I've taken away from it. And as I began to read the story afresh, the thing that began to stand out to me, the thing that I began to realize is, what if we're actually supposed to identify with the people of Jericho? What if, as we come to the story this time, what if we're actually supposed to identify ourselves and see ourselves a little bit in the losing side? And so if I could, I'd like to 
take us down that path because I believe God has something he wants to say to us this morning from the perspective of Jericho. Uh, Let me show you what I mean. The very first thing we're told in the text, the story begins in Joshua chapter 5. And so what's happening here is Joshua is taken over from Moses as the leader of the Israelites. Now, Moses is the most famous uh, leader in Israel's history, especially up to this point. Moses is the one who God used to bring about the plagues and the judgment on Egypt that eventually led God's people to be set free from their slavery and bondage in Egypt. Moses was the one who led them in the wilderness for 40 years. And now Moses, the servant of the Lord, is dead, and Joshua has taken over for Moses. And Joshua's task is to lead the people into the promised land. God had promised the land of Canaan to Abraham, their forefathers, And so the very first challenge, the very first city they've got to get past to go into the land of Canaan is the city of Jericho. And so the first thing that we're told in the text is an angel appears to Joshua. Joshua is kind of looking at Jericho going, what are we going to do with this? And this is what happens. Joshua 5, starting in verse 13, it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us? Or for our enemies? That's his question. Are you on our side or are you on our enemy's side? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. So Joshua encounters this angelic figure. He's he's a man with a drawn sword. He, He identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's armies. And Joshua's question to him is Are you on our side or are you on our enemy's side? And his answer is, neither one. I'm not on either. I don't get involved, and God doesn't get involved in human sides. He doesn't pick human sides. He says, I'm not a Democrat, and I'm not a Republican. I'm neither one. I've got my own side. I've got my own purposes that I'm trying to work through here. And so the real question, Joshua, is, are you on God's side? Not is God on my side or is he on my enemy's side? Which, you know, what side does God pick in human battles and human struggles? He he doesn't really have one. God has his own side. God has his own purposes. The real question is, are we on his side? Have we aligned ourselves with him and his purposes? As you begin to look at this text, what becomes obvious as, as you enter in and you read this text is that God... His purpose here is that he has come to a point where he has deemed Jericho, the city of Jericho, ripe for judgment. It's time for Jericho to come under judgment. Here's what we know about Jericho from the story. What we know about Jericho is that it was the gateway city into the land of Canaan. It's the first city that Israel has to, to get past in order to get into the land of Canaan. And what we know is that the city of Jericho is exceedingly evil. It says extremely evil. And not only that, but the city of Jericho, we, what we know even from archaeology is that it's been exceedingly evil for a long, long, long time. In fact, the old city of Jericho, the archaeology uh, digs have happened and they've found 21 different levels of civilizations in the old city of Jericho. That's a long, long, long time. It's, it's referred to as the oldest city in the world. And whether it actually is the oldest city in the world technically or not, I'm not sure. But it's referred to as the oldest city in the world because it has been around for so long. And so this is not just a place that's evil for this time and this moment in history. This is a place that's been evil for a long time. 
generation after generation after generation of sin and evil has taken place in this city. It's very well known for this. And so what, what's happening here in this moment is the city of Jericho, God, God has said, look, it's time. Your time is up. It's, it's time for the city to be judged. It's kind of like, you know, football season is back, right? Anybody excited about that? Anybody ex excited? The foot well, football season is back, sort of. Right? I mean, the Big Ten starts up again here in October. And a lot has changed in the, the world of football, uh, except for the Lions. The Lions have not changed. It's if, there's, if there's anything that's comforting, it's comforting to know that some things never change. It is the same old Lions. But everything else in football and in sports world has changed, right? But here's, here's the reality of any uh, sport where there is a clock, whether it's football, whether it's basketball, whether it's hockey, whenever there is a clock, what happens is the clock actually determines the play. Some of you have heard that statement before. The clock is actually what determines the play. Coaches understand this. Players understand this. Even fans understand this. At the beginning of the game, when there's plenty of time left on the clock, what happens is, you know, the play calling is very conservative. And so we're worried about protecting the ball. We're, we're, you know, we're going to try to get a few yards, whatever it is, but we're going to be conservative. We're going to be careful. We're going to be measured in the way that we call plays. But when you get to the end of the game and the clock is winding down and the game is on the line, and the scoreboard looks like this. And I realize this is a basketball scoreboard, but it, you get the idea, same idea. When you get to the end of the game and there's just a few seconds left in the clock and the game is on the line, the clock determines the play. And suddenly you see the play calling, it becomes dramatic. We're not trying to protect the ball anymore. We're going all out. We're doing whatever we have to do to try to win, right? This is where we get terms like Hail Mary passes and you know, things like that, buzzer beaters, they, they, those kind of terms. We, we get those because that's what happens at the end of a game. Things become intense. The risk-taking goes way up because we recognize the clock determines the play and we don't have forever. The clock is winding down. That's kind of, this is kind of where Jericho is. Jericho has been around for a very long time and the clock has wound down and the game's on the line. And it's time. It's time for them to make some changes. It's time for them to do something dramatic. But they don't. In fact, that's what we're going to see in the story is that Jericho really doesn't, it's like they don't even really react. There's no really big response. And the reason we know this is, is because the text goes on and tells us kind of the battle plan. So, so the next thing we're told is that God, God begins to speak to Joshua and he begins to give Joshua the battle plan for how God wants him to engage Jericho. Now let me give you what would have been a typical battle plan in ancient times for a city like Jericho. If you were an army and you were going to go against a city like Jericho that had been fortified with a wall that surrounded the entire uh, city, there's two things that you would do. The first thing you would do is you would surround the city and you would cut off the supply lines. So, so that way you're basically starving the people inside the city out. You're starving them out. They can't get food. They can't get water. Nobody can come in or go out to, get, to bring food or, or water or supplies into the city. You surround the city. You cut off the supply line. That's the first thing you do. The second thing you do if you're going to attack a city like Jericho in ancient times, is you begin the process after you've surrounded the walls of building what's called a siege ramp. A siege ramp is basically a huge pile of dirt. You just begin to build it up and it becomes a ramp that then your army can go up over the wall with. Now, both of these things, starving a city out and building a siege ramp for a large wall would have taken weeks. It would have taken months. 
In some cases, it would have taken years because both armies are probably fighting uh, each other while this is taking place. God doesn't tell Joshua to do any of that stuff. If you're Jericho, that's what you're expecting. You're expecting them to come around and surround you. Because here, here's what we're told in the text. The people of Jericho know Israel's coming. They know Israel is on their way. And in fact, what it says is they're afraid of Israel. So if you're in Jericho, if, if you're inside the city of Jericho, you have heard about the Israelites. You've heard about what God did, this God that they serve, Yahweh. You heard about how he raised them up and rescued them from the hand of the greatest military superpower of your day, Egypt, through these miraculous plagues that happened. And then you know that God has sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness, and you know that they're coming for you. You know that they're headed to Israel. The clock is winding down. There's a few seconds left on the clock. You know this, and you're expecting them to surround you. You're expecting them to build a siege ramp, but they don't do that. Here's what Joshua tells, or here's what God tells Joshua to do. Joshua 6, verse 1 it says, Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. Like we just said, they know they're coming. No one was allowed to go out or in. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. Now, just stop for a second here. Just go back if we could. That word ark, as soon as you hear that, you might, you're thinking like, like Noah's ark? What are you talking about? They have to march around with a giant boat? No, this is, what this is referring to there is the Ark of the Covenant. For God's people traveling through the wilderness, they had this, this container called the Ark of the Covenant that had the most sacred holy items in it that Israel had. And what they actually believed about the Ark of the Covenant was that the Ark of the Covenant was symbolic and representative of the very presence of God. So God says, you're not going to surround the city. You're not going to build a siege ramp. What you're going to do is you're going to put your priests out front. You're going to take the Ark of the Covenant— which, by the way, usually you would take the Ark of the Covenant and you would hide it in a battle scenario. You would never want the enemy to have access to the Ark of the Covenant. That was the very presence of God. You would hide it. So I want you to put that out front. And it's literally, it's like he's saying God himself is going to march around the city in front of you for six days. Six days they march like this. Go ahead to the next one. On the seventh day, you were to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. That's the battle plan? Really? If you think about what warfare would have required at this point in history, like that's the battle plan? You're gonna put your most vulnerable people the priests and the Ark of the Covenant out front, and that's what's going to march. They're going to lead the procession marching around the city. That's the battle plan. That's what God calls them to do in, in this moment if they want to see the city of Jericho become theirs. Now, again, here's what we almost always do with this story. Every sermon I've ever heard, every Bible study, this is what we do with this story. We read that story and we go, yeah, that makes sense. I'm like Israel. I, like God calls us to march. He calls us just to keep marching. He calls us to be faithful and he'll win the battle for us. As I began to read this story, again, even for our time right now and for what I, I believe he wants to share today, 
what I began to think about was, why? Why did God require them to do that? Uh, yes, they, I mean, it was an act of faith on their part. They had to be faithful to God. They had to trust him that he was going to win the battle and be faithful to march even when it didn't make sense. Yes, that was their part in it. But why did God ask them to do that? What, what was that accomplishing? Here's what I believe. I don't think it actually was for Israel's benefit that they marched around the city for six days with the Ark of the Covenant out front blowing the ram's horns. I think it was actually for the people of Jericho's benefit. Think about it. You're in Jericho. If you're inside the walls of Jericho, you know these Israelites have come for you and you're afraid of them. You know they're on their way. The clock is, is winding down. And now what you hear is they're not building a siege ramp. What they're doing is they're marching around the city with the ark of their God out front. And in this moment, what are, you, what are you thinking to yourself? You know they're not there to play patty cake. You know they're not there to mess around. You know they're there for your city. What, what is this giving the people of Jericho an opportunity to do? For six days, what are they being given the opportunity to do? Repent. They're being given the opportunity to surrender, to open the door, walk out and go, hey, we get the message. We ask for mercy. We surrender. We repent. We get it. The message is coming through loud and clear. We get it. For six days, they've got an opportunity to look at themselves, to change their ways, to come out and, and ask for mercy and, and to surrender themselves. They've heard about what happened in Egypt. They know that the, these same people with this same God, they're marching around their city right now. They've got an opportunity for six straight days to come out and go, we get it. We're sorry. We repent. We, we surrender. We wave the, the white flag. Will you have mercy on us? But they do nothing. They do nothing. The text is very clear. There, there's absolutely no response. There's no reaction. They just let them march over and over and over again. Day after day after day, they let them march. And so the, the question I want us to wrestle with is, why don't they repent? For six days, and even the morning of the seventh, they're marching around for seven times on the day of the seventh. Why don't they react? Why don't they respond? Why don't they repent? You know why? Because they have a wall. That's why. Have you seen our wall? Are you kidding me? You're marching around out there? Good luck with that. You've seen our wall, right? Our wall's pretty impressive. They know they got a wall. And they had fixed their trust and their faith securely to this wall that they were hiding inside of. See, here's the problem with walls. Walls give us a false sense of security. Walls give us a false sense of safety. And walls allow us to remain comfortable in our sin and in our addiction. Walls remain us to, be, to stay kind of oblivious and numb to the ways that our sin is affecting other people and hurting other people. That's what walls do. And so the question I'd love to, us to, as we turn this story a little bit toward ourselves and as we see ourselves a little bit inside of it, the question is what walls are you hiding behind? Because we've all got them. We've all got walls. Every one of us. I do, you do. We've all got walls. 
What are the walls that you're hiding behind in your life? For some of us, maybe it's a financial wall. I've, I've heard it said that nothing really changes for American families until the money runs out. And I've seen that be true in, in lots of people's lives and lots of even my own friends' lives. What happens is the money finally runs out and so, or this event comes and happens and the money disappears and suddenly you watch this family, they begin to make changes that they should have made a year ago, or two years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it is, but they don't do it until the wall of finances gets torn down. Maybe for some of you, maybe it's the wall of health. A lot of times we say, I'm, I'm good, I'm healthy. Nothing really changes a lot of times for people in their lives until some diagnosis comes about. And, so, and you'll watch people when they go through a medical diagnosis that, that threatens their life, they begin to reevaluate their priorities. They begin to look at things and they begin to make changes that they, that they should have made a year ago, two years ago, 10 years ago. Why didn't they make those changes before? I have a wall. You see my health? I'm in good shape. Everything's good. Maybe for some of us, our wall is a political candidate. And we just say to ourselves, hey, four years of this person is going to fix everything. It's going to fix it all. So I don't have to look at me. I don't have to look at the ways in which I personally need to change, the ways in which I personally need to own the, the way of my sin and my life patterns are affecting myself and others in my world. This, as long as we just get this person elected, they're going to solve it all. You see my wall? It's great. And what walls really do, the, the thing that walls really allow us to do in our lives is, is they allow us to play for time. They buy us time, or so we think. We think that our walls are buying us time. I've got time. Go ahead and march around my city. You see my wall? It's pretty impressive. Come on. This past week, I was uh, engaging with a family. Um, dad and grandpa this past week was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of lymphoma. And uh, so I, I knew, I met with him in the hospital. I also met with uh, family members. And so I, when I knew I was going to be sitting down with this family, I went back in my journals. So five years ago, from in April of 2015, I was diagnosed with uh, a form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I remember that week, just like this family was in, where like all this information is coming at you and you're trying to absorb it and trying to figure out what does this mean? Where is this going? And so I wanted to kind of put myself back in that place and remember as I was going to meet with this family. So I went back and I found, I keep journals, like prayer journals. And so I went back and I found April 2015. I opened it up and I looked at some of my journal entries um, from that like week to two weeks right after I got diagnosed. And I found a journal entry. I'd love to share with you what I wrote on one of my uh, pages of my journal during that week. Uh, this is a little bit personal, but this is one, of the, this is one journal entry I had during that week said, he, this is God, he is making it clear to me, I wrote, that there are things I am running with that I need to walk with. Carrie, Alan, Drew, Aaron, John. It's my wife and my four sons. What I was saying here in this moment was there are things I am, there are relationships I am running with. Suddenly, I, I was just becoming aware, like there are interactions I am just running through, conversations I am just sprinting through, I'm just trying to get to the end of the conversation. I'm moving so fast, and I need to slow down. I need to walk. 
I need to invest deeply. I need to be fully present. I need to care. And by God's grace in the last five years, I have endeavored to do that. I haven't been perfect, but there's been a, a change for me in the last five years with this. I went on, I wrote a, another sentence after that one. I said, there are things that I'm walking with that I need to start running with. I put forgive, and I had a person's name in that that I'm not going to share, but I, I had a, a name there. Forgive so-and-so and then share the gospel with, and I had a name of a person there. And what I was realizing with is the same time there are relationships I'm just running with, there are also certain things I'm walking with. I had some unforgiveness, some bitterness toward this certain person. There'd been a rift between us, and I thought to myself, I can just walk. I can just walk with this forever. I can just hang on to this. There's no hurry at all. And what I began to realize that week after that diagnosis was, no, I need to run. I need to, I need to go to this person. I need to forgive them. I need to ask them to forgive me for my part and what I had done with this rift because life is too short to live with bitterness and to live with unforgiveness and to carry that around. Life's too short. There's another person, we, we call them around here, our one life. There's just somebody in my life that I knew didn't know Jesus, I was walking with, that I was in, in relationship with, and I just felt God beginning to say to me, you need to run. You think you've got forever. You think they've got forever. You don't. You need, and you need to go to them. You need to run with that conversation. You need to tell them that from the day you were born, God has known you and loved you, and he has been pursuing you from the day you were born in the person of Jesus. Because he loves you, and he wants you back for himself, and he, want, he has a plan for your life. And by God's grace, I have done both of those things from those five years. I went back and I was just shocked at what I wrote. I had forgotten I had even written this. What was happening here in this moment? What was happening to me in that week after my diagnosis was I was realizing there was a clock. And the clock does determine the play, my friends. It does. And I was realizing I don't have forever. I don't have forever. So God soften my heart. God, I repent. God, forgive me. God, work in me in a fresh and a new way. You know what Jericho needed to do in this story? The same thing we need to do. What Jericho desperately needed to do in this story is they needed to tear down their own wall so God didn't have to do it. They needed to rip a hole in that wall and come out and say, here we are. Mercy. Will you have mercy on us? We get it. We get the message. We, we repent. How do we do that? How do we tear down walls in our lives? We, we do it by confessing. We do it by talking to someone. We do it by admitting that we have a problem. We do it by asking for help. But from God and from other people, that's how we do it. But the story, this, what's so tragic about the story of Jericho is that they don't do it. They never respond. Six days the, the army, God just says, march around, march around, march around. God knew what he was going to do. He's not doing this for Israel's benefit. Yeah, I mean, they had to have faith. He's doing it for the people of Jericho. Are you, here's your chance. Click, click, click. Here's the, talk, the clock. It's winding down. Those moments where our walls are torn down from us, they're the greatest gifts we could ever get in life. Moments where we get a diagnosis. Money, moments where the money runs out. Moments where we realize we can't put our faith and our trust in a person because they'll let us down every single time. That's what human beings do. Those are beautiful moments because we come to this realization that our faith and our trust can't be put in our walls. That ain't gonna fly. There's only one thing that we can put our faith and our trust in. 
And that's the person of Jesus Christ. That's his salvation that he's provided for us. The fourth thing we're told in this story, it's the most shocking part of the whole story. It is actually not that the walls come crashing down. That's the big climactic moment, right? They march on the seventh day seven times around and they blow their trumpets and a huge uh, earthquake happens, we believe, and the, the walls came crashing down and the city is theirs. There's no battle. The city is just theirs. We think that's the biggest, most surprising moment of the story. It's not. That's actually the most predictable part of the story. You know it's coming. The, the big turn, the big surprise moment, the biggest kind of reveal that you don't see coming in the story has to do with a character named Rahab. At the moment when the walls come down, God says to Joshua and to the Israelites, he says, you go into that city and you find Rahab the prostitute and you take her and her whole family and you bring them out and you make sure they're safe. You make sure they're taken care of and you're going to actually have them live with you. They're going to be part of the people of God now from here on out. Why? Why did God command them to show that kind of favor? What we know about Rahab is that she's a prostitute living in one of the most evil cities in history. She is a racial outsider to the people of, of God. She is a religious outsider to the people of God. She has no claim on the promises of God. So why did God spare her and her entire family? To find the answer to that, you actually have to go back a few chapters to Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua 2, what's happening is the people of God are spying. There are spies that are sent from the people of God to spy out the land of Jericho. They know that's the first city they got to get by to go into Canaan. And so they go and they begin to spy out and see what, what's this place like. And they meet Rahab, the prostitute. And Rahab listens to their message. She recognizes they're from this God, Yahweh, that took out Egypt and, and uh, rescued them from Egypt and sustained them through the wilderness. And she says, we, I get it. She said, I get the message. And she says, uh, I'm going to help you. And so she helps the spies. She gives them safe passage. She recognizes what's about to happen. She recognizes that the clock is ticking down, that her entire city is, is ripe for judgment. She recognizes that God is coming. And so her words to them, she says, will you remember me? Remember me, remember, the, remember me with your God. Just like that thief on the cross said to Jesus as they're hanging there on the cross, remember me, remember me today. And so she helps them. And so what happens in this moment, it's this beautiful picture of God's mercy and his grace. Rahab, when the moment the walls come down, she and her family are spared. They're brought out, they're brought out and they live with the people of God. But not only that, you go to Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament, the gospel story of Matthew, and Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus. You find the name Rahab. This person who did nothing of any merit of her own in the scriptures. She was a prostitute from a really evil town. That's what she was, who just repented and turned. And she is rescued and brought out, and she is actually used by God to bring about the Messiah. She's the great, 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 great something grandmother of Jesus. And her only merit is that when given the opportunity, she turned and she repented. Wait a minute, Brian. Wait a minute. Wait, are you telling me that if the entire city of Jericho would have just done what Rahab did, that if they would have just repented, if they would have just turned around, if they would have just surrendered, if they would have just asked for mercy, that they could have been spared? Yes, that's what I believe. That's what I believe. The same mercy that was shown to Rahab is available to every single one of us through the person of Jesus. What we see in this story 
is this beautiful truth about God. It's these two attributes of God that you find all the way throughout the scripture, and that's this idea that he's a God of mercy and he's a God of justice. Most of the time, we like to either focus on one or the other of those attributes of who God is. We say God is justice, and we have this idea that he's this angry God who's always looking to try to hurt us. Or we say he's a God of mercy. He really doesn't have any standards for sin. He's just good with whatever we do because he loves us. And really, he's both. We see that in this story so clearly. He's a God of justice. There's a song we sang, uh, he is merciful and mighty. It's this old hymn. I love, I've always loved that phrase, he's merciful and mighty. In other words, he's mighty enough to bring justice. And he won't tolerate sin forever. There is a Yom Kippur, a judgment day that is coming one day for this entire earth. But he's also a God of mercy. That he loved us enough and he cares about us enough that he gives us time and he brought, he brought the person of Jesus. And so we're saved by, by turning and repenting, by tearing down our own walls and saying, yes, I need the grace and the mercy of Jesus in my life. And by surrendering our, our lives to him, we're extended the same grace and the same mercy that Rahab was extended. That's how we fight the battle. That's how we fight the battle. I love what Peter said in the New Testament, talking to the church. Peter basically giving the same message to the church. He says, and remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. Do, do you hear that? Are you on our side or are you on our enemy's side? God, which one? Not, neither one. Neither one. I've got no favorites. I've got my own purposes I'm working here. Question is, are you on my side? He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. Did you know that you're a temporary resident here on this earth? You're not supposed to be here forever. None of us are here forever. Paul, the writer, Paul talks about our physical bodies and he calls our physical bodies tents. He says our, our tents are, are just a temporary dwelling. Just like when you go camping, you set up a tent just so you can tear it down. Our bodies, our physical bodies aren't meant to last forever. So live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residence. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. Right now, we are living in a time where God has, in his mercy and his grace, has offered the person of Jesus. And by his blood, he's paid the sacrifice, paid the penalty for every single one of our sins so that we can have eternal life and know him. Right now, we are living in a time of mercy before judgment. The Bible talks about some, at some point, and people have all kinds of questions. When is it gonna be? When is it gonna be? Are we in the end times? I have no idea. None of us really know, but we know at some point, Every single one of us will stand in judgment. Our time will be up. Right now, we are living in a time where the army of God is marching around the city walls. Right now, we are living in a time where there, there is time to repent. There is, right now, we're living in a time where there is time to put our trust and our faith in the person of Jesus. Right now, there is hope. Right now, there is an opportunity. Are we taking it? Or are we just looking at what's going on in our world and saying, you've seen my wall. I'm good. I got plenty of time. Kidding me? God in his mercy and his justice speaks to us every day. There's a clock. There's a clock, my friends. 
Maybe you see now why this message was something I kind of resisted all week long. But I really believe this is what God wants us to hear today is that he loves you and he's been pursuing you since the day you were born in the person of Jesus. Whether you fixed your faith and your trust securely to your wall, he wants you to know you've got time. I don't believe you're here physically in this room by accident. I don't believe you're watching online right now by accident if you're to this point. So I just want to give you an opportunity. Would you bow your heads with me? This is an opportunity to tear down a wall in your heart. Just right now, where you are, just between in your life, if you can just get completely real and completely honest with God, is there someone you need to forgive? Is there a wall that you need to tear down in your heart? Something that you've kind of allowed you to stay comfortable in your own sin? You need to go to talk to somebody. Do you need to ask somebody for help? Or is it today, do you need to just say, Jesus, I surrender. I want your mercy. I want your love. I want to stop trying to do this on my own, believing that my wall that I put my faith and trust in is somehow going to save me, my idols that I've just kind of trusted in. You need to just surrender yourself fully to Jesus. So, Father, we come before you right now, recognizing that it was your precious blood on the cross that paid the price for our sins so that we wouldn't have to be sitting under judgment. We just recognize, God, that it's your power that frees us. It's your power that redeems us. It's your power that changes a life. It's your power that beats the addiction. It's your power that heals and restores relationship. And so we ask for it. We ask for it today boldly. We ask for it today not because of any merit of our own, because of anything we've earned or done on our, on our own, but because we know we, because of Jesus, we can come boldly before the throne of God and we can find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. That's what your word says. And that's what we claim this morning. So God, would you do it? Would you help us to tear down the walls in our lives and our hearts and to put our faith securely in you, Jesus? And as we do that, would you raise us to new life? Would you write something powerfully through our story, just like you did with Rahab, the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus? Would you write something more powerful through our story than we could have ever written on our own or imagined could even be possible? We ask this in the risen and resurrected and powerful name of Jesus. And everybody said,